welcome to another edition of Practitioner Radio, Pink Elephant's podcast for the IT management community. Practitioner Radio, Episode 12, Pink Elephants Podcast for the ITSM community, the fastest 30 minutes in ITSM audio. Hey, everybody, it's Chris, and I'm here with everybody's favorite ITEL practitioner, Troy Dumoulet. Hey, Chris, how you doing? Fine. Troy, last time we were on the air during the fastest 30 minutes in uh, ITSM radio, we said we've got to tackle this demand management because... I can't learn fast enough. Uh, I need uh, I need one of those chips like Neo had in the Matrix, except you would be the Oracle, and I would say, Troy, I need to know demand management, and then boom, I would just know it. <laughs> Since we're talking about demand management, I, I did a little bit of homework, Troy, and I thought I'd start out with a quote, quote. because I thought, you like quotes, don't you? I love quotes. I love quotes. Yeah, yeah. That's See, I was, I was being a little Troy-like today. When you look for quotes on demand, you get all sorts of crazy stuff. I like the brainy quotes. Yes, and that's where I was. Let's see. Oh, All right. So this one is by Al Capone. Ooh. Ooh. Watch the machine guns get him out. And the quote is, I am like any other man. All I do is supply a demand. You know, that's the oldest business there is, isn't there? <laughs> Basically, someone's got a, a demand and someone figures out how to supply it. Yeah, I don't know exactly what Al Capone did. I'm not that versed in history. I, know just... I think it has something to do with illicit drugs in that case. Oh, well, that's not us. That's not us. Or alcohol. You know, it's prohibition, too. Oh, that, that's, I, that's, that's safer for me. So, Troy, demand related to capacity, related to everything. Can you can you get my head straight so I can start figuring out how we're going to slice this apple? Yeah, let's kind of just put it in simple terms, right? Any provider, any service provider has a basic tenant. They have to understand the demand, uh, be that something that they can anticipate and predict or understand it that's more reactive. And they have to then be able to supply that, whatever is demanded to them, and not get out of balance so that they're actually creating stuff that's not wanted or you know, building stuff that no one wants. That really makes sense to me in an economic sense because I think about you know consumer demand for maybe something as simple as Apple devices. But when it gets to the service desk, that seems to be a really tough nut to crack because when you introduce new services, at some point did we figure out if there was a demand for them? Well, think about your uh, your experience with Erlang calculators, right? Yeah. Really, we're trying to predict the volume of incoming and kind of figure out a proper an appropriate staffing level based on time of day and volume. Mm. That's really a demand management exercise. You're actually staffing your desk based on predicted demand. That's interesting because I've been seeing a lot of threads recently on all over the web asking for staffing calculators and that sort of thing. In your experience, do those type of calculators do a good job or are there some intangible things that those calculators don't take an effect that maybe a consultant could help you with? Well, let's go back to the, there's the predicted demand and there's non-predicted demand, right? Ooh, 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 I like this. Okay. Right. The predicted demand is based on your past history. I have seen a pattern, I can identify a, a type of pattern-based activity, ITIL calls it, and I can kind of say, based on this pattern, time of day, time of year, here's what I can put into my calculator. Mm. But that's kind of historical prediction. But then there is non-predicted, which is something that's either going to surprise you, which is hard, of course, to you know the size for. Mm-hmm. But there's also, you, you know there's a project coming in, right? It's Monday, the day after the large major change. So why not forget the predictive calculator and staff up for that period of time? So it's not in your normal life cycle, but it's something that you know is happening. 
uh, more on a transactional basis. So two uh, two parts, project, historical, and then the third part would be stuff we just have no idea. We don't even see it coming. Or we're in a place that we're seeing it coming in a shorter um, timeline, right? So we're at the meeting, in the change meeting the week before, and suddenly we hear about this a new change coming in, so the service desk manager makes sure she has three more people on the desk on Monday. She heard just in time. So it wasn't something she knew six months out as a prediction. Right. So is demand management something you are constantly looking at? Oh, absolutely. It's got to be constant because the moment you stop losing sight of demand, you start producing and having excess capacity that no one wants to pay for. Yeah, right. which which has historically been something we've, we've talked a lot about on this podcast. You, you mentioned kind of having uh, your finger on the pulse of all the projects. I know that project management is something that, you know, we have pink, we have classes on it. At, uh, there's a whole framework around it. Aren't there two? There's like Prince 2 and something else. Yes, we have Prince 2 and Pimbach from the PMI. That's it. See, that's why I need you. Okay, so we, we've got, uh, So is there some type of symbolic link between understanding our project management business and, and what you and I talk about? Well, project management is the mechanism for accomplishing, you know, the, the goal of the project. Uh, it's being fed by a portfolio process. Mm. And uh, there's project portfolio management or annual funding for projects, which usually goes year out and every year you got to prioritize what you're going to pay for and what you can source and resource. And then I will talk something about something called service portfolio management, yep. which is looking three to five years out and looking at not just you know what's coming in new, but how do I improve legacy, right? Right. The demand is on the front end of both of those. It's the pipe coming in. Right. Do you... Do you think three to five years is a realistic number with as fast as things are moving? Or am I just so out of touch that I think things are moving that fast? Well, think about it in levels. Okay. Onions, like onion. You know, onions got levels. Gosh, you always bring up the onion and I end up crying on the podcast. We do this all the time. All right. So, you know, I would hope to think that business strategy can be a bit further out. You know, I yes. I have a goal and a business objective, right? That that could be two to three years. I have expansion goals. I have market penetration goals, those types of things. Uh, technology adoption, that might be something less, you know, maybe maybe you know, six months to a year because technology changes so fast. So it's all about, you know, the context you're talking about. Right. So, you know, so often I, I see in the news these, these these large companies and, you know, acquisitions seems to, you know, some days it's everybody's acquiring everybody, some days nobody's doing anything. Acquisitions is usually something I, that you don't hear about to the very last second, I guess because of FC, FEC, or what is, who's, who's the trading people? The Federal Exchange Commission. Uh, how does the, the IT department or the, the business leaders that would seem like something that would just surprise us because we didn't hear about it. Or in your experience, do we know about it? It depends on who you are in the food chain. Like, mm. for example, the business, of course, will be conceiving this much earlier in this lifespan. I probably think they at least a year or two maybe out, they're thinking about their targets for acquisition. Uh, at some point, they narrow that down and they start to do some due diligence and one of the due diligence steps is to go in to kind of look at this organization, right? At a top end, your architects are typically going in to kind of look at their current infrastructure and applications and, and, and bringing that as one of the inputs into due diligence on the decision to acquire. And then, of course, when the trigger is pulled, it's got to, all the systems have to be integrated. Gotcha. So they're, they're at least involved at that due diligence stage before the final decision made. Hopefully that's the case. Otherwise, there's a key piece of information missing. So if I really want to beef up my stock portfolio, I need to become friends with infrastructure people. Well, architects specifically in this case. <laughs> All right. No, no insider training on practitioner <laughs> radio. No, 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 no. Um, in the two examples we've talked about so far, 
we've used the people as, as what we were increasing our supply of. Can you give me some other examples of things we look at when we look at demand? Right. So um, let's think about it in the context of the two types of demand here. We have the, the predicted and the non-predicted, right? Right. So the predicted comes in some annual process, mm. but they both are triggered by a relationship management role with the business. So picture you have an account manager and now in ITIL 2011E, new edition, you have that business relationship manager role that ISO has had for a long time, but now ITIL defines specifically. I think that's what I want my future job to be, but that's another podcast. I think you'd be great at it. (laughs) Business relationship manager sits down with um, our business customer and they say, okay, it's the annual planning cycle here. And we've, this is what you have. Here's, here's the catalog of services you subscribed to last year. Right. And this is what you had used. And this is where you went above what you thought you might use. And what's your plan coming up into the next, you know, 12 months to a year? Are you expecting to move into that market? Are you thinking about expanding this department? And they literally give that business relationship management role insight into their predicted demand for this year. Now, Obviously, you know, they can't think of everything, but at least they get the annual input and that goes into the overall portfolio process. And if there's major projects as well as just augmentation of existing services, those major projects get into the funding filter, right? So that's your annual cycle and it has to be done before budget time because it has to be inputted as one of the uh, triggers for that. Now, that's what I know about at the beginning of the year in my planning budgeting cycle. But this business relationship management role doesn't just visit their customer once a year, Let's say they have a monthly visit, mm-hmm. right? And they're pulling with them now, not just uh, their catalog, but their performance reports, their SLAs. This is how we've done. This is where we fell down. This is where we would like to do better. Anything you want to tell me about your new requirements? So this is where the non-predicted demand might come in. I know I didn't tell you about this six months ago, but this is something that just came up, <laughs> right? right. So we need this too. And so there's this relationship role that is, you know, should be on the front end of of the portfolio and demand process that gives me some instant insight into the requirements. Mm. That's how it, in a theory, should work. Now, in theory, because that often is a missing role. Yeah. Have you, in your great tenure, run across business um, relationship managers? I have. In fact, many times they have been developed simply because of the pain of not having them. There's no mm. human interface. You know, we don't have yeah. you know the UI between the business and the uh uh, the technology speak, right? There's this layer that has to be put there to kind of keep that relationship sane. Challenges they often stand up these account management, business relationship management roles without any backing, without any service catalog that say, here's what we actually do, or any kind of performance measures or underpinning contracts and OLAs that would allow them to actually promise something. So they, they put these people out there and they're pretty much standalone without the supporting uh, structures they need. Yeah, I would think. Also, it'd be a difficult role just from the KPIs you would have to develop for that business relationship manager's job itself. I mean, how do you measure when they're effective and when they're not? Absolutely. They are, in essence, supposed to be presenting the service portfolio to their business customer and about talking its about sizing, its and, sizing demand. and demand. Wow. Uh, and so, uh, and so you know, how do you have measures around what's not defined? <laughs> physics. Physics. That's where quantum physics comes in into play. Uh, we need to get Michio Kaku uh, maybe on on our show. Actually, uh, <laughs> actually, I've seen one interesting phenomenon because I'll often see them put these account management BRM roles in front of uh, their business customer, and sometimes they're actually absorbed into the business unit mm-hmm. uh, where they go native because now they're on the business side and they're no longer they're no longer a business account manager. 
they're actually now the business speaking back to IT because they can speak IT speak. Yeah, there seems to be, you know, we get into that fine line that we've talked about on so many podcasts. Uh, someone who can speak, you know, multiple languages, uh, multiple you know, business versus IT, strategic versus uh, continuity. Some of the processes that we've talked about, processes that we've talked about in previous shows, we've talked about continuity, availability, all of those feed back into the demand. Can you give me, and I, and I, I specifically remember on, on episode 10, I was just like, well, wait a minute, I keep wanting to talk about domain management, and that's the, when we're talking about continuity. Uh, and you said, we'll get to that, we'll get to that. Uh, can you give me some examples of how these other processes we've discovered feed back into demand? Let me switch it over and talk to how demand flows through the whole life cycle. That would be perfect. So demand on the strategy side is you're receiving that predicted or uh, non-predicted demand. That's the conversation we just had, right? Right. Now, those are requirements. You've gathered requirements in those conversations, business customer requirements, so that when you get to design, now the blueprint, the service design package in ITIL language, uh, has to make sure that it's capturing the attributes of people, process, product, partner, performance that would match the requirements. So the design has to take the demand elements into account in the design. Then I've got to finish this blueprint, get it blessed, signed off, now I bring in the contractors to start breaking ground, and they're doing the transition build, plan, build, test. So when I'm planning and building, I'm making sure that the demand, again, is built in, you know, mm. that it's in the system. And then when I'm validating and testing, I'm testing uh, against load and capacity and ensuring that it's going to meet those performance requirements based on demand. Now it's in operations, and I'm doing monitoring against those services, and I'm setting my thresholds from an event management perspective uh, at that point of where the demand needs to be based on, again, the initial requirements that have come in. And, of course, CSI would say, where am I falling down in any one of those categories, and how do I improve? Right. So that's where demand shapes, because, again, that's what, do, that's what demand does. It shapes supply. I'm not supplying things that my customer has not requested or required. And when you, when you talk about supply... Am, am, I, am I far reaching to say that my presentation layer of supply is my catalog? I don't think you're far reaching at all. That's okay. That catalog entry, that service offering, should describe exactly the attributes of the service as agreed uh, and as promised. So there's parts of the service catalog that maybe uh, we implement in the beginning when we're formulating a, a catalog. And there are parts of, as we go through CSI, that get integrate into the service catalog offerings because of the job of uh, the business relationship manager and architecting this demand that we see coming. Uh, yes, I'm, I'm yeah. really... Yeah, I, let, me, let me give you an example. Get, I'm on the precipice of understanding. <laughs> All right. All right, so let's let's play a scenario through. Let's okay. go back to the, su- the support concept because I think that everyone understands that well. Oh, yeah. So let's say that... You know, the initial requirements was a, a service desk that had a nine to five yeah, open time. Mm, mm. Yeah, but the problem is, of course, some people work longer than that and some are 24 7. So initially, a business unit says, Well, that's not good enough. I need 724 coverage. Now, the catalog only has nine to five. So we get down with the relationship manager, the service level management, and we describe for this customer in a unique SLA. 724. We bring in the knock and they're covering it in the night. And at the you know in the morning meeting, we have a handover meeting between the network operating center and the service desk personnel so they carry over any incidents. And so now I've got this 724-7, 24-7-24 concept going. Yep. 
but it's still unique to this one business customer. So I try that out. It works well. And listen, that, that could be a differentiated offering that I offer here. So in my catalog next year, I don't just have nine to five. I have bronze and silver. Bronze is this nine to five. Silver is something you can subscribe to, which is 724. Now it's a standard differentiated offering, but it has an additional price tag. You can subscribe up or down, but you know there's a price difference to it. See, I, I remember when I went through catalog class, probably one you helped write, they talked about the different offerings, but it wasn't until just now that I think I hear you saying, based on the demand management and maybe a request from a, a different unit and making that request happen with a unique SLA and normalizing that, that we can then take that and add that to the catalog for other people because we understand now. We indeed just did that. We shaped the new offering based on continual service improvement. I feel like I just got Let me give you a a more operations (laughs) uh, example as well for the, the server guys out there. Okay. Okay, so monitoring is good for everybody. Can we agree? Yeah. Yeah. There really shouldn't be an application or a service out there without some basic monitoring. So, But there's levels of monitoring. (laughs) Those levels have additional cost. So let's say uh, my standard hosting service has basic 101 monitoring. Everything must have this basic level. Um, But if you want end-to-end user perception monitoring, it's a bit more Mm. involved, more cost. So the standard hosting has monitoring at this level baked in, but I can subscribe up to um, monitoring silver package which is an additional cost above the base unit of the account uh, for the, that, or the server in this case, as a hosting object or unit. So I can make sure everyone has what's good for them, <laughs> but I can right. also offer an enhanced service as another differentiated offering. So this way I don't give everyone overkill. Like not everybody needs that extra costly, pricey thing, Ugh. but you can pay for it if you need it. It seems to be human nature to want, want everything. If it doesn't have a price tag attached. So, de- so demand must have influence. In fact, remember we talked about financial management. Yeah, one of my what one of my favorite quotes from you from the podcast was, uh, and I'm going to paraphrase because you can't quote Troy Dumoulin. You just can't. It's like uh, it's just impossible. You'll never get it right. But one of them was, what's the difference whether I give you the budget or change, cross out the name budget and call it an invoice? You're still receiving money for services rendered. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, some people have played with the cost. Uh, you know the. I'm going to be a, a, a chargeback system, and they call it showback. Oh. They're not putting it. They're not putting an invoice because that's politically incorrect. Because we're a partner, you know, business partner here. Uh, but we'll show you what the the effects of your demand are, and we'll give you the ability to rank down, ramp down the money you fill into the budget this year if you wish to moderate your demand based on these um, triggers, based on these pieces of information I'm going to share. Wow. There, you know, you could almost really get into the whole idea of end user education around, you know, not just the catalog, but what they're consuming so that they don't over demand. I mean, I know that my electric company now is offering us something where we can actually monitor our household electricity and think, be more proactive about, well, is that a good idea? Should we lower this or lower that? Is that a crazy concept? Not at all. In fact, demand has two basic tenets one is to receive it, understand it, and Predicted, mm. right? That's the intake. Mm. The other one is to influence and shape demand. Uh, okay, you said that. Tw- you said that twice, and both times I didn't get it till just now. Now we're using techniques to influence and shape demand. In fact, these differentiating offering, differentiated offerings we're discussing is a means to shape demand. Mm. Your example of off-peak pricing, mm. 
another means to shape demand because we're trying to help the customer have ways to moderate their cost and have knowledge about what that means and decisions they can make. So we offer different ways for them to lower their costs based on choice. Absolutely love it. Absolutely love it. Because uh, like at Pink, uh, if you've got a laptop and you're one of the people who subscribe to that model where uh, you have your own equipment, I mean, there's a there's a certain amount of education that goes along with that. It sounds great, you know, uh, to, to have that offering. But then once you get it, it's like, Ugh, uh, this was nicer when you guys were taking care of it. Well, that's where you, you know, there are costs and there are benefits to all decisions. Yeah, I know. That's, that's, that's the part I struggle with. But, you know, we love the buffet, all you can eat one price. But the problem is many companies have gone out of business trying to do that. Well, that and there almost seems to be, and I don't know if it's growing because of consumerism, and that's, you know, the buzzword of the last three years, or growing because of just I'm more aware of it. But there almost seems to be a sense of entitlement when it comes to the people we support and what they think they can demand. Well, that's based on history. In fact, I just uh, was looking at a paper that my good friend Gary Case wrote, and he says there's three types of SLAs. Gary, Gary, that's how much, Gary. He talks about three types of SLAs. He talks about explicit SLAs where you've actually documented something and someone expects something based on what you put on paper. Mm-hmm. There is um, historical emotional SLAs, and that's simply based on, you know, in the past, I've gotten this, and so that's my expectation, either good or bad. So without anything else, this is my expectation. Everything's free, isn't it? Uh, And then there's emotional SLAs, or psychological ones, actually, he calls them. So there is explicit, there is expected emotional, and then there's psychological SLAs. And I won't go into that, that's a Gary discussion, but that the concept of the second is what you just referred to. Yeah. They just assume, because it's always been that way, and until they know better, or you show them some information to help them understand, like showback, this is the cost of what you're doing, Right, they have no basis to make any other decision. So I have a secret. Go ahead. I love secrets. When we're recording, I take notes, and one of my favorite notes today was Showback. Yeah, I like Showback. That's really cool. I I think I'm going to tweet Showback afterwards. Um, Yeah, I just love the concept. So you mentioned monitoring, and you know, Troy, I just love to bring that little off off tangent to practitioner radio. So you know all this craziness going on with, you know, connected and collaboration right now. I discovered this group of people, I won't pass any judgment, who study something called quantified self. Have you ever heard of this? (laughs) No. So get this. There are people who use technology to monitor their own body functions. So their heart rate. So you've probably seen some people say, I just ran 13 miles. But there are people who do other things like uh, use sleep sensors and all this other kind of stuff. So they're almost, and and you can look for a hashtag quantified self on all these social sites. And and there are complete communities that meet to talk about what types of technologies they're using to measure and monitor their, their bodies so that they can figure out in the future as they age and demand becomes different, how they will feature or how they will function. And uh, just cr- cr- crazy practitioner radio side note. So is this kind of like the technophobe hypochondriacs? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> they're, they're, they're technology hypochondriacs. I've, I've, you know, I, I see the ads for the Nike monitor and you hear the, the new advancements in, in technologies inserted into your skin where you can transfer data through your, you know. Yeah. I have heard some of that. They didn't know there was actually a name for that kind of poke. It's called quantified self. Quantified you can look self. it up, but it, it, it's it's interesting to watch because these are people who are actually looking forward to merging with technology. Uh, as 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 interesting that sounds, and it's the origins go back to uh, 
uh, pedometers. Well, I'd say it goes back to RoboCop. <laughs> <laughs> Cyborg, here we come. <laughs> you know, we do not have an episode without a reference to an 80s movie. I think that, that's probably our, our thing. So uh, back, back to demand. If I'm a first-line rep, because that's I love to live that role. I think I will forever be a first-line rep in my head. What ways, what data elements am I capturing to help my demand manager, my business relationship manager, the, the process itself uh, in the future? Is it just the volume I'm putting in? Are there other data elements I can capture? Am I looking at text or trends? or? Actually, this reminds me of a tweet conversation I had with Charlie Betts. And he said, yeah. Charlie Betts, EMA, EMA, check them out, and Boulder. Actually, there are four <laughs> entry points of demand in ITIL. Mm. Uh, and we were debating whether there was a fifth. And some people will actually believe there's five. So there's the demand, which is that strategic, predictive, non-predictive customer requirement. That's true. But let's start from the bottom up. You know, there's the incident and request side. Those are two different ones, right? The amount of support demand I'm getting and the request fulfillment side, the you know the low end things where I just need new or modified elements of my existing services. Those are two parts of demand. And then there's the automated catalog where I can literally self provision either you know ask for a smartphone or actually smart provision a VM machine in my cloud offering. Right. So the four again: demand, catalog, request fulfillment, and incident management. You could argue are the four entry points of demand into IT service management. Change management is the debated one, whether change is really an external demand or that's more handling internal change. Yeah, that, that, that would be a debate, wouldn't it? I fall more on the side of it's an internal IT side process. You're going to get your customer external through request or demand. You know, that argument trumps every single LinkedIn conversation that ever asked if a password was a service request or an incident. <laughs> Uh, sorry. I've actually got a blog article on that very question. I know, but you know, people still ask it on LinkedIn. It's a, I, I don't know. You would think that we have, there should just be Troy's Book of Truth. It's a side OGC uh, a book they publish. And, you know, just just the questions, you know, okay, here they are. This is the answers. But, you know, but, you know, just to be a bit modest here, uh, wisdom is simply accumulated experience from everybody else. I've just seen a lot. No, oh, I know, I know, I know. But you've seen more than, than anybody. I know that's why this is practitioner radio. Uh, Troy, it, it's, it's almost that time. And and we've been away for, for for a good three weeks. I know it seems like a dog's age. Well, we're back on schedule now, so you know let's 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 keep the love going. Hey, Troy, it's time for Troy's Thunderbolt Tip of the Day. Okay, Chris. Remember, IT is like any other service provider. They're responsible for planning and managing their supply based on demand. Demand management is in part about receiving, and also in part about influencing demand based on their client's best interest, not their own. Love it. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. And with that, I'm going to show back. <laughs> Thanks for a great uh, episode. Uh, and we will catch you people in two weeks. All right. Uh, talk to you soon. Take care, Chris. Bye-bye. 